Hey guys, welcome to Mace Way. Uh, I want y'all to take a second to grab something to drink or uh, eat and find your seats. We're going to start with our call to gather. Trying to get going on time tonight. We've got a lot of good things to, to get through and want to make sure we leave time for everybody. Got Dan uh, starting his, uh, officially starting a series. He did a little intro last week, but uh, looking forward to uh, hearing about baptism tonight as one of the first marks of the church we're going to look at. So uh, anyway, if you'll take a look at your uh, sheets tonight, um, we're going to start with a song we've done a number of times before called uh, When the Saints. It's a version that Sarah Groves did, a takeoff of When the Saints Come Marching In. And so I'd love to have you all sing along once you find your bearings around here. And the bread has arrived. Yeah.
I'm Tim, and welcome to Emmaus Way. It's good to see you this evening. Uh, I tell you what, it's really good to have real fall weather for the weekend. <laughs> yeah. I, I was very excited about that. It was uh, evidence of the existence of God after this summer. But uh, anyway, hey, I, um, one of the things we say about Emmaus Way is that we're a, a community of friends that um, are committed to living into uh, God's redemption here in this community, this neighborhood, this greater community, and, and beyond that. And one of the things that we think is really critical is that we gather with each other to do that. It's important that we hear each other's voices, hear each other's stories of redemption. We are aware that every week, every month, our view, our perspective on what God is doing is limited by our experiences. And so our, our own stories and the stories of our community are essential to do that. We also gather at the table each week and in, in breaking bread and uh, pouring wine and juice for each other, we recognize that we're not just creating some symbol hoping and waiting for the return of Christ, but that we're embodying the kingdom that's being formed around us. So it's always great for us to be together and to worship together as a community. If you're new with us, and this is the time of year when we have a lot of folks that are kind of coming in and uh, are, are here for the academic calendar, one of the things we want to remind you of is there are lots of other ways to connect, connect with Emmaus Way besides our Sunday evening gathering. We have about five or six, maybe six home groups that meet during the week, different nights, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, 
Thursday. And so if you're interested in a home group, I think Elizabeth's behind me. So Elizabeth is, is uh, in charge of that. You can ask her about that. Also, I know several folks last week were talking about uh, uh, wanting to visit home groups. It's great for you to do that as well and get a sense of, of what's going on out there. So feel very invited to do that. Dan, who's leading our dialogue tonight, one of our pastors, uh, runs our pub group on Thursday nights. And our pub group meets at Bull McCabe's at 8.15-ish and uh, talks about life politics, philosophy, theology stuff, and uh, you're certainly invited to be a part of that, and Dan can give you the scoop on that as well. Um, We have lots of partnerships that are kind of part of the missional life of Emmaus Way. Um, Susan McSwain is with us tonight, and we're going to talk a little bit about Reality Ministries, which is both our landlord and and, uh, as well as a partner as well, so you'll hear about that in just a minute. Uh, Dan uh, and several others are point to... uh, Durham Can and Durham Can it stands for Congregations, Associations, and Neighborhoods. It's a local, nonpartisan political organizing community that's multi-faith based, and it's a big part of our life here in Durham in terms of working for a whole range of issues. The hot issues right now are things like uh, um, jobs and education, uh, a whole range of things. And Dan, we actually have a couple of Can things coming up. Can you mention that to us? So. Um... The big one is that there's a CAN Delegates Assembly, which is the time where we kind of, uh, prior to uh, uh, votes and elections, assemble and ask uh, people who are going to be elected uh, where they stand with regard to some of the issues that we've been working on. We put kind of uh, some of that work on the table to tell them what we've been doing and to ask if they'll continue to work with us. And that's on the 27th. It's a Thursday. It'll be in the evening. Um, I don't yet, oh no, it's at Nehemiah Christian Center, um, which is up off of Mangum near uh, where our old space used to be, but off of North Mangum. Um, if you want more information on that, please let me know. There are usually a group of us that will go together um, and be there. And then the other one is that on the 17th of October, for those that are interested, one of the, um, one of the issues that CAN is working on is uh, the crisis, well, for some, a lot of people it's a crisis, foreclosures in the area. Um, and in working on that, we found that a lot of the documents have been forged by banks, and so we're actually going to do an audit of the county's uh, foreclosure documents. And there's a training to do that on the 17th of October at 2 p.m. That's a Monday. So at 2 p.m., I know that might, for some of you with work, that might uh, exclude you, but if you can show up for that, that would be great. We can use some more bodies. Um, the county clerk's going to teach us how to do that, how to go through and shift through and look at those signatures. So. Um, that's an important thing for people that are facing foreclosure um, and uh, for keeping uh, some of the large institutions in our society accountable uh, to do things properly. Okay. And that was the Delegates Assembly. Say that one more time. Is Thursday. Delegates Assembly is Thursday the 27th, and the training for auditing is the 17th. Okay. Fantastic. Well, we're delighted that all of you are here with us this evening. Look forward to gathering, worshiping, singing, uh, uh, speaking. Uh, Dan's going to be speaking tonight. Uh, He started a series last week that I'm very excited about uh, entitled The Marks of Christian Community. And I think tonight we're we're in baptism. So uh, excited to do that as well. Yeah, thanks, Tim. And uh, our two our songs of preparation tonight are going to come at this idea of baptism from a couple different angles. One of the things that um, you might have seen uh, in some of the conversation this week uh, with uh, the, the weekly or with um, 
the uh, pub group that uh, Tim mentioned is that we um, pub group was reading an article um, by Yoder and it comes from a book called Body Politic and um, so it's um, something there if you want to um, read more in depth stuff about this idea it comes from uh, Yoder's conversation he's a Mennonite theologian and he's um, someone who looks a lot at the early church for tradition and it's a lot of how our table uh, conversation came about and, and many of the things Dan's going to be talking about over the next couple weeks but one of the things he describes in baptism is that um, it's really a conversation about a new people being formed and um, I uh, learned when I was a kid that you know Jesus was baptized by John in many ways because um, he was describing that he wanted to be a part of the people of God that was not uncommon for someone to come to a a religious leader and say, I want to be baptized to show that I'm a part of this new people, um, the people that God is making. And so one of the interesting things about that idea of being part of this new creation that Tim mentioned in his opening um, is that it means that we have to find ways to care for each other, to be unified, to love each other. And it's challenging to do. Obviously, our world is filled with lots of ways that we're not that way. So that's kind of the um, what's going on in this first song, The Distance the distance between us and how it's difficult oftentimes to love and then the next song that we're going to do is a song that you guys uh, many many of you have sung before a rich mullen song called my deliverer which is a song that kind of uh, chronicles jesus's story of when he was young and when his family had to go to egypt to flee persecution from herod and uh, was saying it's proposing this idea that jesus saw on the banks of the nile while he was there in egypt in exile he saw that his life, his um, story, that his death was going to impact the entire world and that he was going to bring people together. So that's where these two songs come from. So sing along or listen, whatever you feel comfortable with. This is The Distance. Well, I woke up this morning about a quarter past ten and drove out on the boulevard. They call it Little Mexico, New Africa in my backyard Yeah, people there living day to day Barely making enough to get by It's a surface glance, it's circumstance But it makes me want to cry And on the same block, there are old folks walking past They lived in days gone by they live check to check in loneliness And they're wondering when they'll die Yeah, a couple get out to give life a last shout As they watch the river run dry Wanna reach out my hand to that shell of a man Watch him hobble by But I wanna stop and take a look around And see the other side and it's a fight to overcome all the differentness of life There's a God who goes the distance, He'll vindicate the pain And He's the only bind that holds us all the same And I work at a job where the cook's in the back They work for some kind of wage They yell Spanish there about things that aren't fair I wonder what they say 
try not to be rude when I yell for my food There must be some other way But it's a problem of time, it's their world and mine As we part at the close of the day And I want to stop and take a look around And see the other side But it's a fight to overcome all the differentness in life There's a God who goes the distance He'll vindicate the pain And He is the only bind that holds us all the same There's a woman who raised her kids at home Loved them with her life Loved to hear me play my songs And dream of happier times But a man would fight with her in the night Misery filled her mind Heard she cried alone all the time Her struggles, they weren't mine I want to stop and take a look around to see the other side But it's a fight to overcome all the differentness of life And there's a God who goes the distance, who'll vindicate the pain He's the only bind that holds us all the same And I want to stop and take a look around and see the other side It's a fight to overcome all the differentness of life There's a God who goes the distance, He'll vindicate the pain He's the lover of us all He's the only bind that holds us the same I think if uh, you haven't heard this song I deliver, the chorus is really easy to pick up on, and we'll, we'll do it a few times. Joseph took his wife and her child. They went to Africa. To escape the rage of a deadly king There along the banks of the Nile Jesus listened to the song That the captive children used to sing They were singing, my deliverer is coming 
my deliverer is standing by. My deliverer is coming. My deliverer is standing by. Let's go back up to the top. Joseph took his wife and her child. Joseph took his wife and her child. They went to Africa to escape the rage of a deadly king. There along the banks of the Nile, Jesus listened to the song that the captive children used to sing they were singing my deliverer is coming my deliverer is standing by my deliverer is coming my deliverer is standing by Through a dry and thirsty land, water from the canyon heights pours itself out of Lake Sandra's broken heart. There in the Sahara winds, Jesus heard the whole world cry for the healing that would flow from his own scar. Singing, my deliverer is coming, my deliverer is standing by, my deliverer is coming, my deliverer is standing by. He will never break his promise, he has written it upon the sky. My deliverer is coming, my deliverer. Take it up one, so my deliverer is coming, my deliverer is standing by, my deliverer is coming, my deliverer is standing by. I will never break his promise, though I doubt my heart, though I doubt my eyes, my deliverer is coming, my deliverer. One more time we'll go up here. My deliverer is coming. My deliverer is standing by. My deliverer is coming. My deliverer is standing by. He will never break his promise. Though the star should break faith with the sky. My deliverer is coming. My deliverer.
My deliverer is standing by. Nice work. Before each other, we pass the peace to each other tonight. I want to ask Susan, would you come up and join me here on the on the big stool, the uh, Northern Industrial Tools stool? <laughs> Where did you guys get that? Thing? Yeah. <laughs> I hope not. Um, this is Susan McSwain, and we're really excited to have her with us, uh, as long as she's safe. Uh, the um, the um, Reality Ministries has been an amazing friend to Emmaus Way in lots of ways. One is uh, inviting us into this space on Sunday evenings and uh, giving us a kind of a home here and a place that has been uh, very meaningful for us in terms of location and work. But even more than that, uh, being a partner in the work that's here in Durham. So I'm just going to let you talk a little bit about your work. I, I think some people will know portions of reality, but it might be good to give the kind of the big picture of what you do, and I know that you, you kind of lead the special needs side of things, but uh, feel free, have at it. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Um, I'm so happy to be here. I love Emmaus Way. There are several people here who I'm big fans of, um, and I'm glad to get to be here with y'all tonight. Um, I asked Julie what I should talk about, and she said, I think a lot of people know a lot of the nuts and bolts of reality, and we can talk about those too a little bit at the end, but she said, I think it would be great if you could sort of share the, the heartbeat of reality from your perspective. Um, she also said that it's really, that y'all like to be interactive, so I was going to ask you a question. <laughs> Does anybody know um, what the largest minority group in America is right now? Don't be shy. Okay. That's a close second. The largest minority group is people with disabilities. And um, you obviously thought it was going to be a trick question because <laughs> you were afraid to answer. I thought everybody would say Latino. <laughs> so thanks for providing that answer. Um, I'd be interested to know how many of you have a friend who has developmental disabilities. That's awesome. Hey, Trigger. I didn't see you over there. I'm a big fan of Trigger. <laughs> um, so a, qu- a question that comes to mind is if, if the largest disability group in our country is people with disabilities, why do a lot of us not have a friend who has disabilities? And the other question is just where are they? Like the other minority groups that come to mind, we see... Um, I think pretty readily, but people with disabilities tend to be more invisible. Um, and I would say that the heartbeat of Reality Ministries, from my perspective, is um, not just with people with disabilities, but also with at-risk middle school and high schoolers, who are the other group that um, we get to spend time with, is, um, is, is, take, is looking at people who are on the margins, who are invisible because they've been pushed aside for whatever reason, and um, realizing ourselves and helping them to experience the fact that in God's economy, there are no margins, that we're all right in the center of the text. And so what I would say Reality Ministries is about is changing labels. 
um, from rejected, impaired, isolated, from those things to what is more true about all of us than those things, which is um, image bearer, beloved, friend. Um, so I hope what we're about, what, what we want to be about, is, is moving away from us and them and creating a new we. Um, and I think that's true. Um, well, I think it's, it's expressed very well in this huge banner that you guys sit under every week. Um, when people come across the threshold into the Reality Center, we want them to know, I am for you. And one way to interpret that is, is we want the kids and the teens and adults with disabilities who come in to know that we, as the staff and the volunteers, are for them, no matter where they've been, what they bring with them, um, we're for them. But even bigger than that, we want them to know that the I am is for them. And um, that the deepest reality of their existence is the reality of God's love for them. So um, the ways that we do that are through an after-school program, um, 3 to 6 3.45 to 6 every Monday through Friday, we have um, 60 to 70 middle school and high school kids who come in to play basketball in here, get tutoring. We have a number of enrichment groups and um, Bible study groups. Um, we're always looking for volunteers for that, so if you happen to have any free time in the afternoons. And, um, Is Philip, it correct that the number of kids that you receive in the afternoons based on the number of volunteers? Yes, we have a cap on students depending on, there has to be a, a certain adult to, to student ratio. Um, so if you're here, that means more kids can be here. Philip and Mackenzie have been tutoring, so they can tell you about that. Sort of a, a, a really, really important core part of what we want to offer to the kids who come. And then on Tuesday nights, from 6.30 to 8, we have um, our Real Friends, um, which is the ministry to teens and adults with developmental disabilities. Um, we also have a Thursday program that we're just kicking off next week that's going to be a one-day-a-week-day program for adults with developmental disabilities. And we're going to be cooking and doing art and doing yoga and dancing and um, a variety of things like that. So that's another place. Um, if you have any free time on Thursdays, we'd love to have you get involved with that. We also have an alternative school. I don't know if, if you guys know about that, but it's called New Horizons, and it's a small non-public school um, for students who haven't been um, successful in the traditional school setting for a variety of reasons. So that's sort of what we've got going on. Maybe a good question. That one question for interaction. How many folks here have volunteered with reality, either on a one night or an ongoing basis, just out of curiosity? So we've had, it's been a good thing for us the, that this has been a place where not only people have come to Mayus Way from reality, but it's just been a, a wonderful place for people, for people to volunteer evenings, afternoons, during the day and stuff. So maybe a good thing to tell us would just be ways that if, if people wanted to get involved, and we'd love for you to get involved with reality, how do you do that? What's the pathway? Yes. Well, you talk to Julie. <laughs> That's a great pathway. And there are also some people who are great faithful volunteers who aren't here today, too. Um, 
you can stop by the Reality Center any day from 9 to 6 and ring the doorbell and whoever answers the door can, <laughs> whoever it is will probably grab you for their program first. So come to our office and, <laughs> and I can get you connected with the Disabilities Ministry. There are t- the, the, the possibilities for volunteering are really limitless. Um, and no matter what time frame you have available, there's a place for you. Aside from the 6.30 to 8 on Tuesday nights and the Thursdays during the day, um, if you just had irregular, you know, an hour here and there during the week, we love to match up friends with disabilities one-on-one with a friend who would just spend time with them, building friendship. Um, same thing with the after-school kids. Um, we have sort of a, an informal mentoring program, so if you're not free at any of the structured times, if you have a heart for... Um, growing friendships, and hopefully all of our programs really are designed with that purpose in mind. It's sort of like the the programmatic aspect um, exists to create space and fertile ground for real relationships to grow. And so um, afternoons, nights, days, anytime, if you want to get involved, we'll find a way for it to happen. So you can call the Reality Office, you can look us up online and find all of our information. You can talk to Julie or Trigger or anybody, Tim, <laughs> and, um, and we'll get you hooked up, and we'd love to do that. Well, I want to pray for you guys and just thank you for your hospitality. Keenan, I'm going to quote you on this. Uh, uh, Keenan got the opportunity to be part of the day camp and goes on, on Tuesday nights. And uh, your reaction was, having never worked with anyone with, with any kind of disability, your, your image was, I guess I'm caring for them to kind of coerce them to do things that they don't want to do, you know, which, which a lot of us have been in youth ministry settings where it looked like that. Hey, yeah, now we're going to read the Bible, you know, and everybody's like, oh, crap, you know, but, uh, but, uh, but the reaction, but his reaction coming back was, oh, this was totally the opposite. This was helping them do things that they desperately wanted to do with other people. It was an incredibly different mechanism. So if you've never been a part of something like that, uh, you'll be amazed at how much you learn by uh, by by co-learning with someone. So we're really thankful for you guys. And I'll just add to that that the great thing about working with people with disabilities and working with sounds terrible. That's coming alongside, spending time and hanging out with people with disabilities. It's the easiest like ministry work you'll ever do because you don't have to be funny, you don't have to be cool, you don't have to be anything except just yourself. And it's it's really fun. <laughs> I had a boy, Bradley, that was in my youth ministry up in Boston 20 years ago, and uh, I don't know what his disability was, but he had this terrible habit in the middle of these very crafted talks that I would do, and he would shout out, Tim, you're my best buddy. And, and someone said, does that bother you? I'm like, someone say I'm their best buddy. That's the best thing I ever hear all week long. I'll pay this kid to follow me around in the office during the week. Uh, uh, and so there is a tremendous amount of, of friendship and reward that goes with that. Well, let's pray for reality. And I want to thank you guys for your role in Emmaus Way, which is a huge one. You guys have been a, a wonderful gift to us. So thank you. 
God, thank you for our friends here at Reality and their, their, their significant work. And it's a, a work of hospitality. I know with the New Horizons School, it wasn't something they started. It was something they believed in and brought it in because they thought it mattered. And with um, their work that's expanded in so many ways, ways beyond what they've imagined, we're, we're thankful for the way that you've blessed them. We know that like many of our uh, friends that are nonprofits, they have to work to raise money. It's one of those uh, trips across the country, uh, one gallon of gas at a time. And so we pray for their ability to be able to raise the funds that they need to do. And we're very thankful for the, the place of volunteerism this has been for many of us, but uh, are just delighted that, uh, that they're here, that the work they're doing is significant, and in many ways have stepped into an area that should be tremendously abundant in terms of people with disabilities, but there are very, very few options in that community. So we're thankful for them. We're uh, thankful for the way that they've demonstrated redemption to us in so many ways. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming and being with us tonight. This is our tradition before we begin our dialogue. Dan will be up in just a second. But I want to let you um, oops, stand up, uh, greet the people that are around you, offer them the peace of Christ, if you will. And if you're around somebody that you don't know, introduce yourself. And uh, Dan will give us a shout in just a moment. All right, well, I'm going to gently but persuasively call us back. So we began last week, I did an introduction uh, to this new series that we're beginning. And the series is actually, it's, it's interesting that Susan came in to talk about the we, because the series that I'm, uh, well, we're going to work through together is uh, a discussion and dialogue about who is the we when we discuss church. What does it mean to be the church? And we are going to go through some of the key practices, some of the key activities of the church uh, in order to allow them to show us who the church is and how we know ourselves in enacting these practices and in doing these things. Um, so tonight we're actually going to focus on baptism. Um, last week we talked about kind of the who, what, when, where of the church and how that uh, is not simply a kind of bunch of individuals picked out of uh, randomly out of nowhere that kind of once in a while assemble themselves together, but that the church is actually a political reality. Not in the sense of, hey, it's one party versus another party, or that it's some type of cheap shot that you get your opponent on, but that the church actually is a new social reality. It's a new group of people. It's a new formation of life that's being carved out in the world by God. Um, so tonight we're actually going to address uh, one of the practices that often we may not see very much. Uh, we're going to address the practice of baptism. We're going to be looking at what does baptism mean uh, for the community of people who have been baptized and who uh, are being brought into this community through baptism. So we're going to start off tonight by reading some scriptures. We're going to start with Chelsea's going to read a, a passage from Exodus, and then Josh is going to read a passage from 2 Corinthians, and then I'm going to finish up with reading a passage from Galatians. These are on the back of your handout, uh, the one that has the great Thanksgiving on the, on the front of it. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, 
And all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and clouded the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh, and they followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on the right and on the left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses' his servant. All right, this is 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And then a reading from Galatians 3, verses 26 through 29. So in Christ Jesus, you are called children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Amen. So I want to steal a play from one of my professor's books, and I want to start off with a little bit of shock therapy. I want to ask you a question. When was the first time you realized that you were white or black or Latino? When was the first time that it occurred to you that you actually had a race? And they checked everybody for lice, but they didn't check us. 
And I was like, wait a minute, um, if the lights are out, <laughs> I need to be checked too. <laughs> so I'm safe. And she said, no, sweetheart, we don't have to check you for lights. Yes, ma'am, you do, because the lights are here, and it's a real threat. And she said, no, because of, you're different, so we don't have to, you, you can't get lice. Oh, okay, how am I different? Well, sweetheart, you're black. <laughs> oh, now I know. <laughs> and from then on, I kind of saw myself um, that, you know, we're, we're different. They're not us, we're not them. Right. Yeah, so usually some instance, that, that was phenomenal too. Anybody else? Yeah, well, when I was uh, a really little kid, it was 76, right? June 76 is very significant in South Africa history because the so-called Soweto riots. And in my particular white suburb, of course, we didn't really know what was going on, but we knew there were rumors something really bad was going on. There was a big pool of smoke on the horizon from where they just sort of big fire in Soweto, and nobody ever told us that there was this fear, there was them, they were going to kind of rise up and do something bad to us. We were all scared, of course. Now that I know the true history of the Soweto riots, it was all the other way around. It was us doing something to them, if you want to put it in us in their terms. But, of course, that wasn't, as a, as a child, what was conveyed to me, not, not verbally either, it was conveyed non-verbally, that we were terrified of what was going to happen to us. Mm -hmm. And we were responding kind of out of fear. Mm -hmm. And so, in this one passage, I guess in a way, we were the Egyptians, right? Mm -hmm. We were really scared. What happens? The people you, I guess, oppressed say no more. Must be really scared. And, and so, of course, that's, I mean, a lot of this is an analysis after the fact. At the time, I just realized that there was this us and them and a whole lot of fear to do with it. I was a very cool kid. I've been 76 a long time ago. Yeah, so stories of where they emerge from uh, some type of difference, and then sometimes within conflict or uh, what looks like it will be violence. Then. Yeah. Just, yeah. Uh, I think my earliest memory about that was uh, actually my pastor's son, who was a couple of years older than me, just telling me racist jokes that kind of played on stereotypical differences. And I was probably seven or eight years old, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so jokes and discourses that show that to us. Yes, remember one of my childhood memories from the early 50s is um, I was in a department store with my mother when I got thirsty. And I went uh, toward the water fountain to get something to drink. I remember the alarm in my mother's voice. And she said, no, not that one. You have to use the other water fountain. Mm -hmm. And the alarm and shame, what I would now say is maybe shame, but... There's no reason I would remember that, except that there was something so different in my mother's voice. And I say that about her. Later, she participated in the sit-in of the, to integrate the lunch counter in the town where we were. But, but that was just 
so widespread, the, uh, just the assumptions that you live these parallel lives in certain ways. Yeah, Andy. Well, the, well I, I grew up like the first seven years of my life, I lived in rural southern, southern Michigan, and then we moved from rural southern Michigan to um, kind of rural Virginia. And in rural southern Michigan, I mean, I had seen people of color in, on TV and stuff, but I knew no one. I mean, it, mm -hmm. southern Michigan is all white. So moving to the, to the south where there was, you know, mixing of races and stuff like that, that was the first time that I ever noticed anything different. Right, right. Yeah, I think there's usually a time that people come to kind of a, a, a sense of that. Um, through the way in which our culture uh, orders things and structures things. Um, because in, in, in a way, it teaches us, we learn this from our culture, our identity, don't we? I mean, most of us, if we were going to empty our pockets right now, if we were to pull them out, we would have a driver's license or some type of identification that would tell us uh, a lot of the markings about who we are, right? There would be things on here like our date of birth, there would be things on here like um, our sex, all right? Are we male or female? There might be eyes, what color? Maybe blue, uh, hair, blonde or brown, um, height, 6'3". Uh, um, <laughs> we find on these things a lot of the markings of our identity. And though most of the ones that we find on them are things that we cannot change, right? They are things that we've inherited. They've been given to us by people who have come before. They're identity markers that, that, that mark us in a way that tell us who we are and we internalize those. There's a point at which we encounter them, either through facing another group, for facing a different person, and we begin to internalize our identities that way. Now, if we were to empty out our pockets a little bit more, we would probably also see uh, some other things in there. We might see some credit cards, we might see a student ID, we might see a work badge, uh, we might see some other indicators of who our personality is or who our identity is. And I think that given the fact that we have so many things that seem unchangeable, one of the things that is so enticing and kind of appealing about our consumer culture is the idea that you could actually change your personality to some extent. That you could actually take on some other identity. That, you know, if I just buy the right clothes, then I could actually take on an identity that's different than who I was. I can pick a job and maybe that will put me in a different category, as a different person. That I could maybe affiliate with a new school and that will put me uh, in some type of group that will define me differently. So I think in some sense we live our lives in a bit of an identity crisis. We live our lives with a whole list of things that we've inherited that come to us and they may mark us for the better or the worse so far as society do, uh, understands things. And we also understand ourselves as people who have a great deal of choice, who can actually change our personalities. We can change our identities. We can make ourselves new in some sense. I think this is a situation that creates a lot of confusion, competition, and also writes a lot of fiction about our lives. We find ourselves, one, confused about the identity markers people 
we find ourselves confused about what identity markers people choose and which ones they can't choose. We find ourselves in competition with other affiliations that we might have or other groups that might be affiliations. And we usually, I think, try to resolve these tensions by writing some fictions. We write fictions like, well, separate but equal. That'll probably work. We write fictions like, well, as long as everybody does what they want, that will work out right. And we've seen those fictions played out in our society to catastrophe. You see, when it comes to identity, we find ourselves a little bit stuck. A little bit stuck between the tensions of what we've inherited and what we would like to become. But this isn't really a new story. Throughout all of time, throughout all of time, people have struggled with this reality of who they were, what they've inherited, and what identity they might want to take on. You see, in the ancient world, the way in which they negotiated this was through education and through training, right? That through education and training, whatever factors or categories life has given to you by birth or heritage, your will is brought into those and you can actually take on a different nature. <coughs> that you can actually be, ha take on a second nature, as they would say. That through training, through discipline, through education, you can actually become changed. Key to these were initiation rites. Rigorous initiation rites of becoming part of a new community, of working along the road of education to be changed. Now, we're not altogether unfamiliar with this, right? I mean, if you think about it, in our culture, the communities that have the strongest sense of identity usually are the ones that have the most rigorous initiation rites, right? Andrew Renz and I were having lunch the other day, and we started talking about one of these groups. I don't know if you've ever seen it, and I can't remember what channel it comes on, either on Discovery Channel or Nat Geo or PBS. I don't know what it is, but there's a show that comes on that's called Hell Week. And Hell Week is basically a documentary that takes you through what it is like. Well, you're the observer, so you don't really know what it's like. But you watch people walk through the week of boot camp to become a Navy SEAL. You watch them walk through the training, right? There are people throwing up, people puking, they're running on beaches, they are basically just disaster the whole time. People are almost drowning, they bring them to the edge of death in cold waters, they keep them up all night. But at the end of that, what emerges? At the end of that process, at the end of that initiation, a solidified identity emerges because in that initiation right we're told a lot or we're taught a lot about what it means to be a Navy SEAL. That these people brought to the brink of death are resurrected as new persons. The identity markers that had before marked them, 
The identities of family, the identities of race, the identities of category or class are left behind. They're left behind and they become subject to a new defining reality. You see, to be a Navy SEAL is no longer to be confused about who you are because pure raw physique has been wielded to force of will in order to give birth to a new human. There's no contest of loyalties when you're a Navy SEAL. Everything's subjugated to the mission that you've been given to accomplish. And finally, there's no fictions. There's no idea that there's a separate but equal, if you're a normal foot soldier and you're a Navy SEAL, well, we all do our own thing. There's an eliteness of being a Navy SEAL that changes the way in which you relate to others. Indeed, initiation actually teaches us quite a bit about the communities that we're involved in. They teach us a lot about the communities that are attached to these initiation rites because they show us how one enters and what it is that one enters when they pass through this process. It's very similar to the passage that we read here at the beginning, that as the Israelites make their way out of slavery, as God is leading them through the desert out of slavery, they pass through an initiation rite that brings them to the edge of death. They pass through the waters of the Red Sea, and they are made into a new people into a new community. Baptism, I think, is something we have to understand as that type of initiation rite. That baptism is a definitive marker of making us into new people. That all the old categories that were so active before have in some sense been deactivated by this rite. To use two of Paul's statements that we read tonight, baptism brings out a new creation, a whole new creation. And in that, it brings out a new people. In some sense, Paul's not really interested in you becoming Navy SEALs. He's actually raising the stakes quite higher. That the church is actually becoming the new people of God, being grafted into the children of Israel. Now, okay, I know that that sounds like a lot to pack in. And I think to some extent from our experiences with baptism, we've lost a lot of what it means to be initiated. That baptism as a process of initiation or as a rite of initiation has been somewhat lost on us. But you can imagine for a second that in the world of the first century, it would have been quite different, right? You see, ancient, the ancient world and the ancient Roman world was marked vividly with distinctions. There were distinctions all over the place, and it was ordered according to those. Some of those most vivid distinctions popped up in clothing. You may not realize that, but the ancient world was marked distinctly by clothes. 
Now, I know this is hard to imagine because we live in a world where if you're Brad Pitt, you still go out and you buy a $500 pair of cargo pants so you can look like you didn't really spend any time putting your outfit together. There's this idea that we, we really are working class people, right? Even if I'm wearing Versace, I'm a working class person. And we try to move away. We try to, uh, to erase some of those markers. But in the ancient world, if you were a merchant, a wealthy merchant, your clothing would have vividly described that. If you were a soldier, your outfit and the emblems on it would have vividly described your office and your status in the Roman Empire. Similarly, if you were a slave, your whole outfit would have depicted your status. And imagine in the ancient world that those folks were not really encouraged to fraternize with one another. They were encouraged to eat together. They were not encouraged to, to uh, interact with one another, to dialogue with one another. But there were strict orders of the relations between those. In that context, when we pick up the Galatians passage and we begin to read it, we're struck with the vivid imagery of what it must have been to be clothed with Christ. You see, in the early church's baptismal ritual, the baptizant, the person who was going to be baptized, was stripped completely naked. I decided that it was probably not appropriate to have Tim demonstrate tonight, but... <laughs> you can imagine how powerful, how powerful and striking the imagery would have been if you were a royal merchant to have those purple clothes taken off. That if you were a soldier or maybe even an officer in the army, to have all those Roman emblems, the eagle, all of that taken off of your body. And similarly, if you were a slave, to have the garments of slavery taken off And that all of those individuals would have descended into the same font, into the same pool, and in coming out would have been clothed with a new robe given to them from the church. That in their very clothing we could have seen, you can imagine how striking and how uh, uh, controversial this would have been in the, new, in the early church or for the uh, ancient times. That a scattering, a scrambling of those orders would be taking place. That ethnic differences, gender separations, class distinctions, all of those things that were such an important part of life were being transcended. As the person rising from the baptismal pool was emerging to a new social reality, was emerging to a new people, was emerging to new relations and new interactions. The idea was that the person being baptized, her identity was completely remade. We're not talking about some simple inner disposition. 
But we're talking about the fact that the whole of her social life, the whole of what it means to be human for that person, was altered. Here I think we begin to get a sense of what it means to speak of baptism as a sacrament. Now that is a term that we've abused. It's a term that we think we associate with magic, necromancy, some type of wizardry, some kind of special formula that makes things happen. But here we begin to see that it is through common human activity of being bathed and brought out that God participates with that human action. That God intersects the human world in a concrete place with God's grace. Now, as a part of that sacramental ritual, as a part of baptism, there were basically two moments, being buried in death and being raised out. The initiant, or the person becoming part of the community, in being buried in the waters, was being taken into the death of Christ. Was actually taking or participating in the death of Christ. The point here is that the decisive act of God in Jesus Christ, whose death and resurrection changed the world, would now become the defining moment, not just of Christ's life, not just of things out there, but of that person and of the whole of that person's reality. That all those old orders, all those old powers, those divisions that we can use and manipulate for our own purposes, that when I need to affiliate with a group that can get me to the next job, when I need to affiliate with a group that can protect me, all those powers have been deactivated in Christ. The plug's been pulled on them. They no longer work because they've been subjected to the death and resurrection of Christ. Now, I want to ask you a question. What does it actually mean to say that in baptism we enter into the death of Christ. What does that mean? How, do we, how are we supposed to understand that? What does it mean to say that our old lives of sin, exploitation, violence, and manipulation have been put to death? What does that mean? So a sense of the starkness sometimes of, of that old reality possibly and, and maybe the, the possibilities of a new reality and, and sensing that. What does it mean to enter into Christ's death and baptism? 
Jim? I think there, there is some um, giving up of a mission, of a purpose. Mm -hmm. We, in the absence of God, we cobble together some purposes for our lives and means of achieving them. And when we are baptized, we are, th those are some of the clothes that we are taking off, some of the things that we are putting aside. It's, it's that mission. Just as, as Jesus said, um, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. He, he too would have preferred something other than what he went through. But he followed the will of his Father and went through that death. In a similar way, we go through a death in, in putting aside what we had constructed as the grand plan for our lives to subsume that to God's grand plan. Yeah, I think one of the big things that we can see in baptism is a lot of times we think of Christianity as just, you know, this is another thing I can add to the mix to make my life better, right? It can get me to the next stage or it can be a nice accoutrement to the rest of my life and I can add it there and it will be fantastic. But in baptism and in participating in death, we're confronted with the reality that our lives are no longer our own to choose. That in some sense, the mission or the purpose of them has been altered completely. Uh, big point. I think it's not it's not just that kind of grand story of our lives, but it's every day that you know every, it means every day the things that I think I should do. Well, I, I have to you know I have to listen to the needs of, of people around me, whether it's in my family in this church in the in the world around when I look, look at it you know it's the things that um, that death called me to are not things I want to do they're you know they're they're difficult and you know to distract me from myself mm -hmm. you know which I, I like, you know, I like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's good <laughs> yeah I think there's some sense that on one on the individual level that baptism presents us with the possibility that everything can be changed. That we are not necessarily determined by all the hereditary dispositions that our family has given us. That we are not necessarily determined by the categories or the ethnicities that are placed upon us. But that we are made completely different. That we are shaped completely differently, made different creatures by the active grace of God. And then also at the corporate level, however, that we are a people, the church, whose investment is now in the breaking down of those divisions of the old world. That we are the people who are now charged with interacting and participating in God's work to reshape all of things. That rallying to an American cause is no longer a Christian imperative. Or playing allegiances according to the old groupings are no longer a loyalty to Christ's work. That in some sense, on an individual and a corporate level, everything has changed. Now, if you've never seen it, 
there's a movie that came out, maybe 2006, uh, starring Owen, Owen Wilson, uh, Kate Hudson, and Matt Dillon. The title of it is You, Me, and Dupree. Right? It's a slapstick kind of comedy where this deadbeat guy moves in with a couple who are trying to work through their new marriage. Now, the couple uh, has some tensions going on because the, the woman of the couple, her father, is actually a demanding real estate mogul. And his son-in-law has been invited in to part of the company. Right? But continually, he is putting him down. He's messing up all of his projects. He's really, really jealous that a new person has entered the life of his daughter. Well, this, as you can imagine, is getting Carl, our main character, down. He's struggling with his marriage, and he's got this deadbeat roommate, Dupree, living on his couch, who's messing everything up for him as well. Well, at one point, his buddy Dupree sits him down and he tries to give him a pep talk. He tries to talk him into getting back up on the horse, restoring his sense of who he is, and taking on his father-in-law. And he does so by saying, what you need to do is get back your Carlness. And Carl responds by saying, what's this Carlness? It's not even a real word. Dupree says, yes, it is. It's a verb. It's a conjunction. It's a preposition. It's a philosophy. It's a way of life. It's your name with Ness attached to it. <laughs> I think for most of us, we spend a lot of our lives trying to figure out what our Carlness is, or what our Danness is, or what our Deniseness is, or what our Sarahness is. And that we find ourselves struggling in a world we can't make sense out of, trying to figure out who or what our identity is comprised of. But in our baptism, we're reminded of who we are because we're reminded of whose we have become. Our identity has been grafted into Christ. We are those who have passed into new creation. We no longer count ourselves as Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, white or black. We no longer count ourselves as American over against immigrant. We no longer count ourselves as upper middle class over against or above lower middle class or lower class. But instead, we count ourselves first and foremost as Christian. We are those whose identity is comprised of Christness. And we are challenged to live into that identity. I think as a community of the baptized, we then are faced with two things. One, the call of being a baptized community has to mean that we are called to engage in the places of division in our world to counteract them, to deconstruct them, to live an alternative reality in them so that they no longer hold the power over our world that they currently do. This is not some naive sense of colorblindness. That's not what I'm talking about. But it's a way of interacting in our relations with one another 
that display that those types of categories are no longer going to determine who we can relate to and who we can love. And then finally, all of this is only possible because our identities are first lodged in Christ. That seeking and searching for an identity is something that the Christian no longer has to do because the identity is given to the Christian in baptism through participation in the death and resurrection of Christ. We've become members of the new creation, that we are saturated with God's grace, and that God's work in the world is now our theme, our mission, and our collective identity. See, baptism teaches us how to know ourselves. It teaches us who we are as the church by showing us that we are first and foremost God's people. Amen. Thanks, Dan. If, uh, you know, we think about Navy SEALs being trained to become elite killing machines for the United States, I think something about baptism is designed to train us to be loving machines for God's kingdom, people whose highest goal is to love rather than Carlness or Wadeness or whatever. And uh, our confession is from uh, a record called Skin that Peter Himmelman did that's a story of a guy's journey through life. It's kind of a rock opera that takes this meandering journey through this guy's life. And this is kind of a, one of the songs at the end of his life where he's realized that he, he didn't actually live for love. He lived for a lot of other things. And it's a, a lament that he's only at the end of his life realizing that love was what really mattered. And so... Uh, the chorus is someone that uh, I think you'll be able to sing along with us on, but you're also just welcome to get up, walk around, think about these things, pray, um, or hear this as your confession. Well, I've been driving 16 hours. This rain is like a metronome on my radio talking about Jesus talking all about coming home well I don't know a thing about it close my ears and I live without it you can hear too much when you're alone Like children's voices Lovers moaning Or a dry wind blowing through a river bed All these memories They're all wrapped up all of yarn inside my head. 
Now a semi's moving up behind me The headlights, will they all but blind me? But it's funny, for the first time I can see But all I got was greed I have believed in vengeance But all I did was bleed I have believed in fame But fame turned its back on me if I had only believed in love, could have been set free. And I often wonder, does it matter? Or is this all a worthless joke? Are we just atoms? in silence waiting our turn to fly like smoke Will I do anything to lay beside you and bring you all the things that I denied you and that I'd say the words I seldom spoke I believed in money, but all I got was greed, and I believed in vengeance, but all I did was bleed, yeah, I believed in fame, but back on me If I had only believed in love 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 Would have been so free Absolution tonight is a song uh, that Bruce Springsteen wrote, and it's really, I think, a, a picture of the of Christ in the church, of the marriage, the, the ultimate idea of marriage that we see in Scripture, the image of sacrificial love, love where we'll wait for each other, where we notice each other's differences, where there's a way to be um, uh, support to each other, even if someone's different than how we are. Even if someone has values that we don't know how to understand. And so 
Um, this one, uh, again, is really repetitive, and uh, it's really, like I said, like a, a folk song, a hymn that's really talking about uh, the picture of love that's really that ultimate love of, of marriage, Christ, and the church that I think we get also when we see this picture of baptism of uh, all of us becoming one in this new journey. We said we'd walk together Baby, come what may That come the twilight Should we lose our way As we're walking, your hands should slip free. Well, I'll wait for you. Should I fall behind? Wait for me. Let's try the first verse one more time. We said we'd walk together. Baby, come what may. That come the twilight. Should we lose our way? And if as we're walking Your hand should slip free Well, I'll wait for you Should I fall behind? Wait for me Yeah, we swore we'd travel Darling, side by side We'd help each other stay in stride. But each lover's footsteps fall so differently. Honey, I'll wait for you. If I should fall behind, wait for me. Now everyone dreams of our love lasting and true But you and I know What this world can do So let's make our steps clear That the other may see Well, I'll wait for you If I should fall behind Wait for me there's a beautiful river in the valley ahead And there neath the oaks bow, soon we will be wed Should we lose each other in the shadow of the evening trees Will I wait for you? Should I fall behind, wait for me Darling, I'll wait for you Should I fall behind, wait for me Yeah, well, I'll wait for you Should I fall behind, wait for me Darling, I'll wait for you Should I fall behind, wait for me As we turn to um, 
the communion table tonight, we're going to celebrate um, the great Thanksgiving and do the um, liturgy from the Book of Common Prayer from um, many traditions, and it's found on your second sheet. Um, the regular font I'll be saying, and if you would respond um, with the italicized font, if you would stand with me as we do this, I think that would be wonderful. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. Lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. It is right and a good and joyful thing, always and everywhere, to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Therefore we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels, and with all the company of heaven, who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love you made us for yourself. And when we had fallen into sin and become subject to evil and death, you and your mercy sent Jesus Christ, your only and eternal Son, to share our human nature, to live and die as one of us, to reconcile us to you, the God and Father of all. He stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself, in obedience to your will, a perfect sacrifice for the whole world. On the night he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread, and when he had given thanks to you, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. After the supper, he took the cup of wine, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. Therefore, we could proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We celebrate the memorial of our redemption, O Father, in the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Recalling his death, resurrection, and ascension, we offer you these gifts. Sanctify them by your Holy Spirit to be for your people the body and blood of your Son, the holy food and drink of new and unending life in him. Sanctify us also that we may faithfully receive this holy sacrament and serve you in unity, constancy, and peace. And at the last day, bring us with all your saints into the joy of your eternal kingdom. All this we ask through your Son, Jesus Christ. By him, and with him, and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Now, as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. At Emmaus Way, we celebrate an open table. And so behind me, you'll find the elements of bread and wine and juice. We break bread and pour wine or juice for one another, saying this is the body of Christ broken for you, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. 
feel free to talk, to share, um, to pray, whatever you'd like to do during this time. I ask you that you would stay where you are right now. We're going to sing the benediction song together first before we go to the table and then proceed to the table after that. For our benediction, if you'll look at Love Me Like um, and uh, notice that in the first line, the first couple lines, the water imagery that I think we also get in uh, our baptism conversation tonight. Love me like a river that is rain-soaked and swollen That carries off the good and bad the same Love me like an ocean that is wind-swept in motion Pounding with the pulse of eternity Take my hand Lay me down when I don't have strength to stand anymore Love me like a nightingale that sings a song that never fails Sings in darkness yearning for the dawn Love me like a gentle breeze that woos its way inside of me Cools the fires burning in my breast And take my hand Lay me down when I don't have strength to stand anymore Like a river the ocean, a nightingale. Mm-hmm. Oh. Love me like a hollow tree whose branches fly away from me. Keep me looking upwards for the light. Love me like a long stem rose whose thorns repel its bitter foes, soft and fragrant blossoms to arise. Take my hand, lay me down when I don't have strength to stand. Lay my hand, take my hand, lay me down when I don't have strength to stand. Anymore Anymore Go to the table and enjoy each other.